You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com This is a song I wrote yesterday, because I knew I was coming today. (laughs) So it goes like this. Go back to sleep, England. Your government has got it under control. Go back to work, England. You're a slave to money, don't you know? I'm not a communist, I'm not an anarchist, I'm not a socialist, but I am a pacifist. I don't believe in democracy, I don't believe that we are free, I don't believe in politics, cause they're just all a bunch of dicks. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 20th day of June, 2010. I'd like to take a moment, as always, to invite the listeners to check into my websites, CorbettReport.com, AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ClimateGate.tv, and ReportageBook.com, as well as those sites that help to broadcast, podcast, syndicate, collect, and distribute the work of the Corbett Report, including RadioForAll.net, Archive.org, ZeroPointRadio.com, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, TragedyAndHope.com, and, of course, MediaMonarchy.com. And I'd like to remind all the listeners that they can check into the new Z-Pod on ZeroPointRadio.com, which will also serve out its own independently hosted files of this podcast, so that if you ever have problems subscribing to this podcast or downloading any of the files, please go to ZeroPointRadio.com to access the files from their servers. Today I'd also like to once again thank all of those people who have taken the time to send feedback, comments, criticism, support, and other forms of email through the contact form on the CorbettReport.com flagship homepage. And once again, apologize for the fact that as I do all of this work after my regular 9-to-5 job, there is absolutely no way I, I can humanly respond to all of the various feedback that I receive. So once again, I thank everyone for all of the overwhelming support that you continue to send in, as well as the donations that continue to come in through the donate button on PayPal. But once again, I'm sorry, I do try to take the time to read everything that comes in, but I simply cannot respond to it all. So please don't take it personally if I don't get back to you. And now, without further ado, let's get straight to today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 19th day of June 2010. And now for the real news. In our top story this week, the UN's beleaguered Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is facing more troubles this month as some of its own lead authors strike out against it. Last Sunday, a paper co-authored by IPCC lead author Mike Holm went viral on the internet after it was pointed out that it contained a damning critique of claims that the UN-led political organization represents a consensus of 2,500 scientists. Claims such as 2,500 of the world's leading scientists have reached a consensus that human activities are having a significant influence on the climate are disingenuous, he wrote in the paper. 
In a subsequent statement last Tuesday, ostensibly clarifying his remarks, he wrote, quote, Giving the impression that the IPCC consensus means everyone agrees with everyone else, as I think some well-meaning but uninformed commentaries do or have a tendency to do, is unhelpful. It doesn't reflect the uncertain, exploratory, and sometimes contested nature of scientific knowledge. End quote. Also last week, IPCC lead author Richard Toll added his voice to the growing ranks of scientists who feel that the IPCC process must be completely reformed before its fifth assessment report is conducted. Regarding the much-criticized procedures for crafting the political report, Tall wrote, quote, I think that the IPCC should suspend the AR5 process, fix the procedures for nominating and selecting authors, and postpone the report to 2015. I'd rather bet on New Zealand winning the World Cup, end quote. The much-criticized organization and its procedures are currently under review by the Inter-Academy Council, and in a hearing last week at McGill University in Montreal, IPCC lead author John Christie slammed the IPCC defenders as gatekeepers who have become victims of groupthink. These criticisms come on the bank of a series of scandals that have exposed the IPCC as a political organization writing reports for a specific political agenda. In January, IPCC lead author Marari Lal admitted that they had deliberately used a prediction that Himalayan glaciers would melt by 2035, a prediction they knew to be false, to put political pressure on world leaders. Also in January, it was revealed that IPCC predictions that global warming would destroy up to 40% of the Amazon rainforest came not from peer-reviewed scientific literature, but a World Wildlife Fund pamphlet written by a green activist. In February, it was revealed that IPCC had underestimated Antarctic sea ice by 50%. Also in February, it was discovered that an off-sided claim that African countries could see a 50% reduction in rain-fed ag- agriculture in 10 years was also sourced from a political advocacy group. Also in February, the Netherlands protested that the IPCC fourth assessment report had claimed that 55% of their country was below sea level, with Dutch authorities clarifying that only 26% of the country is in fact below sea level. Recent polls show a rise in the number of people who believe that global warming concerns are generally exaggerated, with one poll showing that more Americans believe in haunted houses than man-made global warming. In related news, the collapse of the man-made global warming hysteria has made it difficult to pass carbon cap-and-trade legislation in the Senate that is a key step in creating a carbon derivatives market that will create trillions of dollars for Wall Street firms and oil companies. Attempting to rally support for the proposed Kerry Lieberman cap-and-trade bill in the Senate, Barry Sotero delivered an address this week arguing that the BP oil spill, not man-made global warming, is the real reason this legislation is needed. The tragedy unfolding on our coast is the most painful and powerful reminder yet that the time to embrace a clean energy future is now. Now is the moment for this generation to embark on a national mission to unleash America's innovation and seize control of our own destiny. Each of us has a part to play in a new future that will benefit all of us. As we recover from this recession, the transition to clean energy has the potential to grow our economy and create millions and of jobs. And lowering fear. So, only everybody, I really hope that, that you will transition. go to We Are Changing. Not mentioned by Sotero is the fact that BP, in fact, helped to write the cap-and-trade legislation, nor the fact that GE has lobbied strenuously for the creation of a cap-and-trade scheme from which they stand to benefit to the tune of billions of dollars, nor the fact that Ken Lay of Enron helped to design a cap-and-trade scheme with Al Gore, Goldman Sachs, and others in the 1990s, nor the fact that Sotero himself, currently going by the name Barack Obama, directed a charity that granted $1.1 million to launch the privately-owned Chicago Climate Exchange. 
At this time last year, when cap-and-trade legislation was being voted on in Congress, it was pointed out that cap-and-trade is a money-making operation for the very oil companies and Wall Street financiers who are supposed to be punished by such legislation. At that time, the future carbon market was estimated at $2 trillion a year. Even Sotero himself has admitted that any costs incurred by oil, co oil companies under such a scheme would merely be passed on to consumers. Under my plan uh, of a cap-and-trade system, electricity rates would necessarily skyrocket. Even, you know, regardless of what I say about whether coal is good or bad, because I'm capping greenhouse gases, coal-powered plants, you know, natural gas, you name whatever the plants were, whatever the industry was, they would have to uh, retrofit their operations. That will cost money. They will pass that money on to consumers. Finally this week, Mohawk activist Splitting the Sky has been found guilty of obstructing a peace officer in Calgary court. The charge relates to unconvicted war criminal George W. Bush's visit to Calgary, Alberta last year, the first appearance abroad by war criminal Bush after leaving office. Splitting the Sky was one of the hundreds of activists who were there to protest Bush's entry into Canada, and he was violently assaulted by police after attempting to enter the convention center where Bush was delivering a $400-a-plate luncheon address in order to perform a citizen's arrest. Splitting the Sky joined the Corbett Report yesterday to discuss the case and the ruling. I gave about five hours of testimony and I laid out all of the crimes of the Bush administration, and I basically said that this is my, I was establishing my mens rea, or my state of mind for what I was, the reasons I did what I did, and the reasons why I believe I had the right to apprehend this war criminal, and for all of the crimes and tortures and the murders that were committed, as well as the inside job that was perpetuated on September 11, uh, uh, 2001, and I said for all the uh, stated reasons above, I, uh, uh, this is the reason why I did what I did, and I believe that I am not guilty. I had the right to do what I did. Splitting the Sky was given a conditional discharge and ordered to pay a $1,000 donation to a charity of his choice. Pending court approval, he intends to donate the money to the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Now stay tuned for episode 134 of The Corbett Report, Lessons in Resistance, Culture Jamming, where we talk to Charlie Beach of The Lovelies and Bruno Bruweiler of We Are Change LA about the truth and consequences of jacking people out of the Matrix. It's live from Paris now is Jude Finstera. He's a spokesman for Dow Chemicals, which took over Union Carbide. Uh, good morning to you. Um, a day of commemoration in Bhopal. Do you now accept uh, responsibility for what happened. Steve, yes. T today is a great day for all of us at Dow and I think for millions of people around the world as well. It's 20 years since the disaster and today I'm very, very happy to announce that for the first time Dow is accepting full responsibility for the Bhopal catastrophe. We have a 12 billion dollar plan to finally, at long last, fully compensate the victims, including the 120,000 who may need medical care for their entire lives, and to fully and swiftly remediate the Bhopal plant site. 
Now, when we acquired Union Carbide three years ago, we knew what we were getting, and it's worth $12 billion. $12 billion. We have resolved to liquidate Union Carbide, this nightmare for the world and this headache for Dow, and use the $12 billion to provide more than $500 per victim, which is all that they've seen, a maximum of just about $500 per victim. It is not plenty good for an Indian, as one of our spokespersons unfortunately said a couple of years ago. In fact, it pays for one year of medical care. We will adequately compensate the victims. Uh, furthermore, we will perform a full and complete remediation of the Bhopal site, which, as you mentioned, has not been cleaned up. When Union Carbide abandoned the site 20 years ago uh, or 16 years ago, they left tons of toxic waste, which continues, the site continues to be used as a playground by children. Uh, water continues to be uh, drunk from the, the groundwater underneath. It's a mess, Steve. And it's, a, it's a mess, certainly, uh, Jude. That, that's good news that you have finally accepted responsibility. Uh, some people would say too late. It's three years, yes. you know, almost four years on. Um, how soon is your money going to make a difference to the people in Bhopal? Well, as soon as we can get it to them, Steve. Uh, we've begun the process of liquidating Union Carbide. Um, this is, as you mentioned, late, but it's the only thing we can do. When we acquired Union Carbide, we did settle their liabilities in the United States immediately. And we are now, three years later, prepared to do the same in India. We should have done it three years ago. We are doing it now. Um, I would say that it's better late than never. And I would also like to say that this is no small matter, Steve. This is the first time in history that a publicly owned company of anything near the size of Dow has um, performed an action which is significantly against its bottom line simply because it's the right thing to do. And our shareholders may take a bit of a hit, Steve, but I think that if they're anything like me, they will be ecstatic to be part of such a historic occasion of doing right by those that we've wronged. And does this mean you will also cooperate in any future legal actions in India or the USA? Absolutely, Steve. One of our uh, non-financial commitments is to press the United States government to finally extradite Warren Anderson, who fled uh, India after being arrested in 1984. He posted $2,000 bail on multiple homicide charges and fled India promptly. Um, we are going to press the United States government to extradite Mr. Anderson, who's living in Long Island, to India to finally uh, face the charges, and I believe they may be lenient. Um, we're also going to uh, engage in unprecedented transparency. We're going to release, finally, the full composition of the chemicals uh, and the studies that were performed by Union Carbide shortly after the catastrophe. This information has never been released, Steve, and it's time for it to be released in case any of that information can be of use to medical professionals. And finally, we're going to perform, we're going to fund uh, research. Uh, any interested researcher can contact Dow's Ethics and Compliance Office. Uh, we are going to fund, with no strings attached, research into the safety of any Dow product whose safety uh, many competent scientists have raised significant doubts about many Dow products. And we do not want to be a company that sells products that may have long-term negative effects on the world. This is a momentous 
this occasion, and our new CEO, Andrew Laveras, has, uh, who's been our CEO for just a month, uh, less than a month, has uh, decided to take Dow in this unprecedented direction. Uh, Jude, we will leave it there. Thank you for joining us. Just to uh, reiterate what Jude Finisterra, the spokesman for Dow Chemicals, has just said, he says Dow Chemicals now fully accept responsibility for the events in Bhopal 20 years ago, and they will cooperate in future legal action. Welcome, my friends, to episode 134 of the Corbett Report, Lessons in Resistance, Culture Jamming. Now, what you've just been listening to is the stunning December 3rd, 2004 BBC World interview with Dow Representative Jude Finisterra about the Bhopal disaster, the world's largest ever industrial catastrophe, which struck Bhopal, India on December 3rd, 1984, in which deadly methyl isocyanate gas and other toxins leaked out from a pesticide factory owned by Union Carbide, which was then bought out by Dow Chemicals. The shocking announcement that Dow had decided to liquidate its recently acquired Union Carbide Corporation in order to pay $12 billion to the affected peoples and to provide one year of medical care to each and every one of them was indeed nothing short of an absolutely stunning and unprecedented admission, the only problem being that it was completely fake. This morning at 900 GMT and uh, 10 GMT, BBC World ran an interview with someone purporting to be from the Dow Chemical Company about Bhopal. This interview was inaccurate and part of a deception. The person interviewed didn't represent the company. We want to make clear that the information he gave was entirely inaccurate. We apologize to Dow and to anyone who watched the interview who may have been misled by it. Yes, as it turns out, Jude Finisterra was actually a man named Andy Bitchelbaum of a group called The Yes Men, which is available at theyesmen.org. And basically, that is The Yes Men's shtick. They go around getting themselves taken for representatives of various big corporations and then make rather surprising speeches like that one. That one was probably their best-known work, but they have had many others along the way, and... Please go to theyesmen.org if you want to find out more about their work. Unfortunately, I can't really promote them that strenuously because they seem to be stuck very firmly on the left side of the phony and completely discredited left-right paradigm, and they still believe that uh, man-made global warming is absolutely real and is being vociferously opposed by the oil companies that stand to make billions and billions and billions of dollars from controlling that problem. But still, I very much like their ideas, and sometimes, like with that Bhopal disaster, they absolutely hit the mark, and uh, they've done some incredible work. So by all means, check it out for yourself and come to your own conclusions. And there are even ways of getting involved and becoming a yes man yourself. So absolutely, if not joining the actual group, why not at least use those types of tactics? And that is what we're talking about today. We are talking about culture jamming. Now you can go to various online dictionaries and get various dry definitions of culture jamming, but why don't we start to construct our own definition of what culture jamming really means by taking a look at some of the examples by some of the experts. 
because I think everyone has a basic understanding that culture jamming is somehow taking elements of pop culture and things that are very much a part of the system and turning them around, turning them on themselves, usually displaying something shocking or something so bizarrely juxtaposed that it makes people break out of their zombie-like state and actually begin to question the control grid into which all of us have been placed in this giant social experiment in Pavlovian conditioning. So, in order to really understand what culture jamming really is and how it really works, let's take a look at some more examples. And let's take a look at someone whose work, once again, I think is extremely good in that he is able to use the systems of mass media control and turn them around in order to shine the spotlights on areas that the mass media would never, ever go into. And I'm referring to someone that I'm sure some of my listeners will know by now, and that is Mark Dice at markdice.com. Now, whatever one thinks about Mark Dice and his ideas and his beliefs and his stances, at the very least, I think we all have to admit that he's absolutely adept at going on to mass media outlets and turning the conversation very quickly and very it's very easily it seems into the direction that he wants it to go to this is almost something of an art form and uh, as i think someone who studied communications i think he obviously knows very well how to do this and he uses it to his advantage and that's probably why a he's managed to get on to national television numerous times and b why he's so effective when he does so so let's take a listen to a montage of some clips from Mark Dice speaking to various national media and various national television programs about issues that really matter. Super Bowl is just 72 hours away. Everyone is excited. Well, almost everyone. Uh, let's check into the Sports Lodge. Live from the Jack in the Box studio, it's the Sports Lodge with Roger Lodge. You have a very special guest uh, and somewhat controversial, too, huh? Yeah, this is going to be interesting. My guest, Mark Dice, has a lot of interesting views on a lot of different things. But this morning, we are focusing on one thing and one thing only. Our guest, Mark Dice, says we should boycott the Super Bowl. Mr. Dice, good morning, sir. Good morning, and I would rather have us focus on something other than the Super Bowl, actually. When, when we have a society that knows and cares more about sports than they do about events that actually affect their lives, I think that's a problem. So I want to take this opportunity to urge people to boycott the Super Bowl, to turn it off, to, to read a book, and we can learn about some of the serious issues that affect us, the Bilderberg Group, the Federal Reserve. Maybe if we got as excited about politics and, and yelled and screamed as loud as we do for sports, then maybe we could prevent the scumbags in Washington, D.C. from flushing this country down the toilet. Let me ask you this. What about the fact that on Sunday I'm going to sit around with my family, my three children, 21, 3, and 5. We're going to sit around. We're going to enjoy a nice meal, and we're going to enjoy a good healthy competition between two teams that have worked very hard to get there. The Saints have a lot to play for here for the city of New Orleans. What do you say to people like myself who say this is a wonderful opportunity for family time? 
I think it's a wonderful opportunity for people to educate their families about the Bilderberg Group, about the certain political issues. Maybe you should watch a documentary film by Alex Jones, watch Fall of the Republic or the Obama Deception, and get involved. Instead of yelling and screaming about some people chasing a ball on a grass field, how about we yell and scream about the politicians selling our country out? And now, the only, well, Mark, the only yelling I'm going to do is probably at my wife when I need another sandwich. There's not yeah. going to be any yelling. Wow. But let me tell well, you something. What about two? What about to what this does for the economy and how many millions of dollars this generates with you know just a, you know in Miami never mind you know all the people ordering pizzas and doing whatever this is great for the economy I don't think it offsets the damage that Obama and his criminal okay. uh, okay. are doing for us so I don't think that I'm a fan of President Bush Bush is a, is a war criminal should be in, in prison too wait a second wait a second let me get back to what all we're right, talking you know about what? let me make one more once again, the adept media mastery of MarketIce.com. But, of course, most of us really don't generally have an opportunity to go onto national television to plug such issues. So we have to find other ways of attempting to use the force of the system against itself to wake people from their slumbers, to get the message out in a mass way, and to really otherwise distribute, if not mayhem and chaos, at least that type of chaos which disrupts the matrix long enough for people to fall out. And I think someone who is providing a very clear indication of just how more and more people should be going about this is a man by the name of Charlie Veach, of a fictitious organization called The Love Police. Now, once again, definitions of what the love police are or how they operate pale in comparison to actually getting a chance to experience the love police for yourself. So uh, instead of doing dis a disservice to the love police and what they really do and what the amazing work that Charlie Veach has produced over the last year and a half, why don't we once again listen to a montage of some of the clips from the love police that demonstrate exactly what it is they do and once again, please go to their homepage, cveech.org, c-v-e-i-t-c-h.org, for more information about The Love Police. But right now, let's listen to some audio of The Love Police in action on the streets of London, England. Swine flu. Are we not human beings? You see a further disinformation tactic? They call us swine, they call us terrorists, and then it's okay to put on a uniform, march obediently, and kill each other. And that's the way the system works. It keeps you separate, it keeps you scared, it keeps you terrified of Islam. It's a very, very beautiful controlling system. And the police, though they're human beings, we should give them hugs. They've probably got families, they might even have members of their family in, in Iraq, maybe even killed in Afghanistan. But the truth is, they feel the pain as much because the media make fun of the police. They send the police in to beat us down and then the media destroys them after they get told what to do. So we need the police on our side if we're to win this because they are our brothers and sisters as well. When the final crackdown comes, we need the police to do what their job is and that is to protect us, the citizens, the normal people, against big business interests, against people that will treat you like a number. This is a message to all the city workers. We have unfortunately, we the international bankers spent all your money. We need you to work harder. Keep your heads down. Do not rock the boat. International finance is very real. 
We need to repay all those bailouts. The banks took your money, now you're losing your house because of the banks. That does not matter. You are a worker drone. Do not follow your dreams. You are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. You are meant to wear a suit for 10 hours a day and obey someone called a manager. There is nothing more to your human existence. Ignore nature. You are a worker. Ladies and gentlemen, the true thing is, I know we're creating a scene, but the creating a scene is not illegal. You are born free, you will live free, you will die free. You are allowed to make a scene, you're allowed to scream for joy, you're allowed to complain, you're allowed to cry, you're allowed to love people, you're allowed to hug people. And we're starting to live in a world where we're starting to feel scared, we're starting to forget just how divine and special we are as human beings. Every single one of you is the only example of you that will ever exist. And there's not a single authority on this world, especially not private security men, who can tell you how to behave in any time, any place, anywhere. You are free, you will live free, you will die free. The only chains that exist are in your mind. You can do anything you want if you put your mind to it. And while we're at it, how about this clip, one of my particular personal favorites that just must have been a remarkable moment to behold, on the New York City subway of all th of all places, when Charlie Veach of the Love Police, cveach.org, hooked up with We Are Change New York, including Luke Rikowski and other members of We Are Change, wearechange.org, for a remarkable moment on the New York City subway.
Now that is my kind of culture jamming. Well, there's absolutely no doubt that in the year and a few months that Charlie Veach has been operating and cveach.org has been up, he has done some incredible work and now quite deservedly, I think, has a mass following on YouTube and many of his videos being seen tens of thousands of times. Uh, so absolutely, my hats are off to Charlie Veach for starting a really a new type of revolution, a new evolution in the revolution, one that's based on the, I think, noble principle of raising love and lowering fear two very important elements that go hand in hand and without which I think this entire movement, such as it is a movement, will be lost. So it was with great pleasure that I had the opportunity to speak earlier this week to Charlie Veach, and the results of that interview are not only available from the interviews tab of CorbettReport.com, but it is also now up on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash CorbettReport, and I'm given to understand, although it's not at the moment, it will be posted to Charlie's YouTube channel as well at youtube.com slash cveach, C-V-E-I-T-C-H. So let's listen to an excerpt from that interview where we talk a little bit about the Love Police and their upcoming work in Toronto for the G20. I guess moving forward, let's take a look at some some things that are coming up because I understand you're going to be going to Toronto for the G8 slash G20 coming up uh, next week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks again to the donations which people help me with. I'm able. Um, I got a cheap flight to Toronto from London. I'm uh, I'm good friends with Luke Rudowski from We Are Change in New York, the founder, and I was lucky enough to spend five days with him in New York. And uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about poor Luke uh, in New York. But after spending five days with him, living with him, spending 24 hours a day with a guy, he is genuine. He is sincere. And let's not forget, he's, he's a lot younger than you or I, James. He's in his early 20s. So, of course, you know, he's still learning as well, as we all are. In Toronto, I'm meeting up with the We Are Change crew from New York. Obviously, there's going to be the We Are Changes from around Toronto will come in. And uh, a group... A guy called Dan from Press for Truth. Uh, he's a Canadian. I don't know if you ever seen any of his stuff. Yeah, I love his stuff. I've never had him on, but I should uh, probably talk. I'm to very him. jealous of his beard. He's, he puts the fun. <laughs> he puts fun into fundamentalism. And, and uh, I, I love his really humble, you know, innocent interactions with these giant big steroid security in Toronto, Bank of Canada. So Dan Dix, Luke Rudowski, Charlie Beach, Love Police, Press for Truth. We are change. We're going to be doing a lot of work together because, you know, when you bring these disparate individual groups together, there's, there's no need to bring it under a giant umbrella. Just stay individual, but collaborate. So we're going to have a lot of fun. Um, what I really want to do is just show the absurd ridiculousness of bringing Robocops to a peaceful city like Toronto. I have a lot of experience with London, the most heavily um, closed circuit television city in the world which the, the poor Canadian taxpayers are spending millions of Canadian dollars now installing cameras all over Toronto. The scientific, you know, empirically deduced evidence of London is that CCTV does not lower crime. Um, 
you know, and what I love about the, the street community in London, uh, the best way to get around CCTV is to wear a hooded top and a baseball cap. That's it, finished. So for, for $20, you can, you know, protect yourself against CCTV. But I want to dance, I want to jump around, I want to play music to a whole bunch of human beings which unfortunately have been through a robotic training program. I speak of the Toronto police, which are probably this very second, James, being briefed about how we are all terrorists, we are all hippies with AIDS, we are full of syringes, full of heroin. And what I'm sure in the police training camps, because policemen have told me this, is that they find the 20 worst examples of an activist going crazy, hurting a police officer, and they will sit them down in a, in a classroom saying, no, you're activist. They are full of drugs. They are deranged. They will kill you. And they'll probably play them YouTube clips of, you know, aggressive activists, you know, beating up, breaking the legs of a police officer. So they fill them up with fear and hate. And let's not forget, a lot of police come from conservative working class backgrounds. And a lot of activists in Britain, unfortunately, come, well, not unfortunately, just the, the case is, they come from middle class educated backgrounds so there's already that class warfare thing going on so what we need to do in toronto is to try and connect with a human being behind the the robocop training and the only way to do that is to get close to them don't intimidate them be be a human being and try and look them in the eye and luke tried that in uh pittsburgh and i i really respect luke for being on the front line and i was really honored to see Luke using some of the Love Police tactics in uh, Pittsburgh on the megaphone. He was really, really great in front of all the Robocop police. Well, um, he, I, yeah. I, I just want to say, absolutely. I think, I mean, this is an idea that for whatever reason is part of the zeitgeist now, and we see people talking about it more and more. I was talking to Charlie Skelton recently about uh, his plans for Bilderberg, and he was talking all about how we have to interact with the police and get them on our side because they're part of us, that we shouldn't treat them as enemies. I think this is really an idea that, that a lot of people are coalescing around right now, and uh, you're a big part of helping to bring that into the mainstream, and I, I'm so glad to see that you're going to be there because this is exactly what we need to do is to engage the police as human beings and to lower fear and to raise love. So yeah. I'm really excited to see the work that, that you do out there because uh, I, I love your style and I know you're going to do some great work out there. But uh, I hesitate almost to bring it up, but I understand that last April at the G20 in London, you saw a pretty horrific event. Do you want to talk about that? Of course. Yeah, no, quite happily. Um, I was a witness to the IPCC, which stands for the Independent Police Complaints Commission, there was a middle-aged man, his name is Ian Tomlinson, who the whole world saw the police kill him. They killed him. Um, I had the chance to speak to him twice in the minutes before he was killed. I unfortunately did not have my camera with me, but I had my megaphone. And Ian Tomlinson was there, just like the rest of us, to express his disgust at the machine-like globalization we were all being subjected to. And also... He was there to express his disgust at how the police actually create riots. If the police weren't dressed like Robocop thugs, I don't think the, the, the crowd would have been so, you know, angry about it. But the, the mainstream media, because the mainstream media isn't interested in the truth. The mainstream media is interested in selling newspapers, which is good because they're corporations. That's what they do. But they portrayed Ian Tomlinson as the world's most peaceful, innocent victim of, uh, they, they said that he was just walking past on his way to work. He got caught up in it. That is not the truth. In the truth movement, even though it's not really 
beneficial to us to say he was a troublemaker. He came up to me in the moments before his death and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, how you doing? And he was smelling very, very heavily of alcohol. And uh, he was telling me, I'm going to beat up police. I'm going to go there. I've been fighting them all day. I'm going to F them up. I'm going to screw this, screw that. I don't like police. I effing hate police. And I was like, whoa, this guy's really drunk. And uh, not that this means anything, but he had love and hate tattooed on his uh, knuckles. And, you know, why would someone want to have love and hate tattooed on their knuckles? So he, when you, the footage you saw of Ian Tomlinson uh, walking with his hands in his pockets, he was, he was there, obviously, to protest. But um, in the, all the official footage of him getting killed, you can actually hear an idiot in the background going, who let the dogs out on the megaphone? That's me. Um, and, uh, I, and, but what was very interesting, James, in the theater of protest, he, he got smashed down by the police. He walked another 10 paces, stumbling, obviously dying, and then he fell over. There's a few people throwing bottles at the police, um, plastic bottles and like some plant pots, strangely enough. But I, I just said on the megaphone, I said, look, guys, everyone stop. There's a man dying here. We need a police medic. And all of a sudden, everyone kind of snapped out of it. Whoa, we're all human beings again. Everyone stood aside. The police medics came running forward with like a little army of 10 Robocop police. Nobody um, stopped it. And you know the expression, it's great fun until someone gets hurt. I saw the British... Um, politeness suddenly instantly appear and uh, I was it was thousands of people rioting but as soon as word got round that someone was in trouble um, the, it kind of parted like Moses parting the sea and everyone stood there quietly as the, the ambulance came in and it was like a funeral procession and the police were really saddened by it, we were really saddened by it but um, let's get to the truth of the matter James no matter how drunk or stupid or aggressive someone is, they do not deserve to be beaten to death on the floor in front of 50,000 people. Or how many, No matter how stupid or ignorant or aggressive you are, the police are there to protect us, not to truncheon us to the ground until we die. And so that was a massive wake-up call to me. Now, once again, that is just a short clip of the interview that I had conducted with Charlie Veach, and it doesn't really do justice to the interview as a whole, which I think is quite fascinating and which has already been receiving quite a bit of positive feedback. So once again, I would wholeheartedly suggest that you go and check out that interview in its entirety, either from CorbettReport.com, the interviews tab, or from my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash CorbettReport, and watch the entire interview front to back. But suffice it to say that Charlie Veach is having an incredible amount of success merely by spreading a message of love and empowerment of individuals rather than the message which is constantly fed to us through the they live John Carpenter type society where we're living, where every message that we see, the subtext is always obey, obey, obey. Well, instead, there's another message and there's another way to live your life, and that is that you are a divine being, that you are worthy of living in this planet and being a free and completely unconstrained individual who, when left unconstrained, can reach marvelous and unexpected heights. And that is the message that I think will ultimately win this fight, such as it is. And without that message, I think we will be lost. So absolutely, please go and check out cveach.org. Of course, there is another side to this type of 
culture jamming or I guess uh, waking people from their slumbers by engaging in unexpected tactics in the public spaces. And, of course, that is well represented by another group who my listeners will already be well familiar with, and that is We Are Change at wearechange.org. Now with dozens and dozens and dozens of chapters all around the world, and this is an organization that we've been following basically since its inception a couple of years ago, and of course founded by the, what, 23-year-old now, maybe even younger, uh, Luke Rudkowski in New York. So once again, a remarkable individual who's showing others how to be remarkable individuals. And, of course, We Are Change has many chapters, and one of the chapters that has been absolutely the most incredible and the most effective in really getting in people's faces and really waking them up and exposing them to the truth of the lie that we've been placed into is We Are Change LA, out in Los Angeles, California. They've been doing incredible work consistently for years now, and I have, in the past, had the opportunity to speak to Stuart Howe of We Are Change LA, so maybe you'd like to go back through the archives at the interviews tab of CorbettReport.com to find that interview and listen to that to refresh yourself with Stuart Howe and the activities of We Are Change LA. So once again, please check out We Are Change LA at WACLA.org. But as incredible and empowering and love-filled as this work may be, it is, of course, not without its dangers. Whenever people really try to get inside the matrix and to really crash that matrix and, and drop people out of it, there will be agents of the matrix who will step in to defend the system that enslaves them. And unfortunately, that is the case with We Are Change Los Angeles. Very recently, one of the key organizers of We Are Change Los Angeles, Bruno Bruweiler, was attending, attending a court hearing in which he was expelled from the courtroom for making facial gestures that the judge disagreed with. And after that point, unfortunately, some agents of the Matrix in some funny costumes that apparently gives them authority to throw people into prison stepped in and made their presence known. So now Bruno Bruweiler of We Are Change LA is facing some very serious legal charges for merely having made faces in a courtroom. Absolutely an incredible and incomprehensible situation, but still one that exists and one that will require, unfortunately, that worthless paper that passes for value in our society in order to pay the lawyers who go and make their business to defend people from the agents of the Matrix, and it's all part of the game, but unfortunately there is no way to escape it until we change the society from the ground up. So, it is unfortunate, but we do need to support these people who are out there who are making a difference in the world and are raising love and lowering fear. So, everybody, I really hope that you will go to We Are Change LA at WACLA.org and consider making a contribution to Bruno Bruweiler's legal defense. But right now, I had the opportunity the other day to speak to Bruno about the events and, and what happened specifically to him. So let's listen to a bit of that conversation to find out more about his brush with the agents of the Matrix. And let's get straight to the point, because the, the latest post on We Are Change LA's website at, at WACLA.org is titled, We Are Change LA Organizer Faces Terrorism Charges. So tell the people out there about this horrific and terrible offense against the court that has landed you in this trouble. 
<laughs> the original offense was that I guess I was shaking my head because of what I heard coming from the bench. And I wasn't even thinking about it. I wasn't even looking at the judge. But she didn't like that I was shaking my head, and she ordered me to stop shaking my head. And uh, I I knew that... Uh, <laughs> I knew that was an unlawful order, and I just let her know that I'm not, you know, she's trespassing on my rights. I have a right to shake my head. And it and, uh, wasn't long after that, she said, stop making facial expressions. And I, I'm just in shock what's going on. I don't know, what, you know, it's bizarre. I never expected that. I was just in the audience as a third-party witness of the proceedings. And it was, it was, I was just in shock, and I... And I told her I'm. She's trespassing on my rights to express myself. I'm not. I told her I'm not talking. And then uh, she ordered the bailiff to uh, get me out of the court. And I stood up and told him, you know, I was ready to leave, and said, I'm, you know, you're trespassing on my rights. It's an unlawful order. Um, but I left the court, and the courtroom door opened, and there were sheriff deputies there. I guess the bailiff called, and I walked out on my own accord. You know, I'm not going to fight, but uh, I walked out. Before I knew it, I was out in the hallway, and uh, they were putting handcuffs on me in the hallway. And um, and I was being led down the hallway, and I was ended up in a uh, in their office. That that's absolutely incredible. I mean, that that's completely beyond comprehension. So basically, the judge is a god in that courtroom and can order anything that she wants, any behavior that she wants from anyone in that courtroom. And yeah, if not you- lawfully. Yeah, she can't do it lawfully. And the problem with the um, law enforcement is that they take they treat it as if it's military, and the judge is a general. And the judge gives an order. They don't question it. And that's the problem with law enforcement across the country, and I guess around the world, is that you know, they're supposed to take an oath to the Constitution uh, and to, uh, to protect us, the people. But really what they're being brainwashed and trained to believe is that their loyalty is to the order that's coming from the higher authority in their ranks. And that's their military. They've been militarized. So, so you got charged with contempt of court for actually following the order and leaving the courtroom. Uh, yeah, and there was never contempt was made. Never uh, contempt a warning. Contempt warning was made, and contempt wasn't even mentioned when I was first detained. and said they were detaining me for trespassing. Then they said they were detaining. I wasn't even arrested when they were leading me down the hall with uh, handcuffs. They said they were detaining me for public disturbance, trust, whatever. They mentioned any anything and everything. And I sat in a chair handcuffed, and I must have been in the office for at least an hour, probably more. By the time they were done, I had two felony resisting arrests, a felony threat, and a contempt of court. And if you look at the counts, it says, order to remain silent in court, and and that I ignored a lawful order to remain silent. So they lied. All charges uh, have been fabricated. But you have witnesses to that, right? Yes, I do. I have three witnesses from the courtroom, and hopefully they won't destroy the tapes from within the courtroom and outside the courtroom in the hallway, because the tapes will exonerate me completely. 
Absolutely. Well, it, again, they, they had to lie because they had already arrested you and, and they needed charges to, to put you in jail. So it's just ridiculous. But um, It's not true, though. Hold on. That's not true. They didn't arrest me. They detained me. And it was as I was sitting there, and that's why we believe they did some research on who I was, and that's where why all these massive, ridiculous felony charges came from. Because uh, as I went through the... Uh, incarceration phases, they knew that, oh, so we are changed, huh? And I didn't answer any of their questions. I said, seemed, you know, like, so you got a website? And I said, I, I think you probably already have the answer to that. And uh, so it became, it became apparent that they knew who I was. And as I've gone through the courts, they've been railroading me through all the procedures. Right. Here's someone who stands up for his rights. So we've got one of those. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. And they called me crazy because I stood up for my rights and they put through by when I was going through the court, uh, the jail system and ended up in LA County. I had three officers surround me and say, you need meds. You need some psych meds. And I said, why are you asking me that? And he said, you all like cops. You hate cops. I said, that's not me at all, man. I'm out there t reaching out to police officers. I'm part of an organization that raises money for 9-11 first responders. I said, that guy was just a hothead. And, you know, so the point of that is that there was libel and slander following me through the whole uh, system, that they li they lied about everything regarding me. And to to rile up the all the officers against me. Right, so, so tell people about the actual, when you were actually detained uh, outside in the hallway and, and why you're facing resisting arrest charges. Well, I, I did, I asked the officers, I, here I'm having, you have to look at it from my point of view. I'm in order to leave a courtroom where I'm there for a reason. Because they lie, we know the courts have, uh, you know, can be fraudulent. I'm there as a witness to the proceedings so that I can uh, be a witness later as to what actually happens in the courtroom. So here I am being ordered to leave on a, you know, on a ridiculous charge of having facial expressions, you know, because if I were nodding in agreement with the judge, she wouldn't have kicked me out. So having facial expressions, so I'm out in the hallway and I'm frustrated. I don't get excited. I am adamant that I need to see the IDs of the officers and by their own handbook and by the laws that we are, the statutory laws, they are required to give me their card for identification. I shouldn't have to lean in and read their tag or their badge number. They're required to give me full identification. And the problem is they don't really like being asked. Apparently they don't like being asked uh, for their identification. Um, and that's really where it came from. And it got to the point where he said, turn around, put your hands behind your back. And I did exactly that. No hesitation. I turned around, put my hands behind my back and i still said, you're you know, violating my rights. And he handcuffed me and down the hall, I said, you're violating my rights. What am I being charged with? Why am I being detained? And, uh, so that's where the felony resist one of one of the felony resisting arrests came from that. The other one apparently came from the courtroom. 
that the bailiff that I was felony res- resisted the bailiff. And felony resistance means you got violent, physical. And it's just not true. I was never within five feet of that bailiff. Um, and I didn't get physical ever. And I know, but if I got physical, I would have ended up on the floor with five officers with their knees on my back. Once again, you can tell that you're having an effect by the amount of flack that you're receiving, so certainly We Are Change Los Angeles has been doing some incredible work and getting the notice of people who are in positions to do things like throw them in jail. So, once again, We Are Change Los Angeles needs our help, as do all of those who are out there engaging in this cultural warfare the peaceful, nonviolent information warfare that will serve to change our society and that is already having such an effect. So please go to WACLA.org and consider, consider contributing to their legal defense fund. And also, of course, please support Charlie Veach at cveach.org so he can continue doing the incredible work that he's doing and definitely keep an eye in the coming weeks for video and footage from the G20 in Toronto. I'm sure there will be some interesting stories coming out of that, and we'll be keeping our eye on that here at the Corbett Report as well. But ultimately, the point of today's episode is merely to show some examples of people taking action in ways that are highly effective in turning the tools and of oppression against the system that oppresses. And that is an effective technique. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for today's episode and asking you to join me again next week for episode 135 of the Corbett Report. Know your toxins, sodium fluoride.